Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, it's another dreary day here in central Illinois today. Yeah, Preston, I'm sitting here looking out the window at overcast skies, kind of drizzly, uh, same way it's been for about the past two and a half weeks. Right on. Well, thankfully, harvest is about to wrap up here in central Illinois, right? We're mid-October at the time of recording, and it feels good to be a little bit ahead of schedule this year. Yeah, I believe you're done with your harvest, Preston. We still have a few beans left to do here, and um, all the farmers out there know what drizzly and rainy weather does for combine and beans. Uh, it means it doesn't happen, basically. But if we get a little bit of sun, a little bit of breezy weather for a couple days, we can wrap up here in about a week. For sure. For the listeners out there, you know, a lot of you guys in the, the cab of the tractors, you're seeing a lot of tar spot out there. I just wanted to point you all to our last week's episode, episode 56, where we talked to Matt Helm about the new tools and the battle against tar spot. Uh, definitely worth your listen after we talk about today's topic, which is a little bit different than our normal corn soybean talk. Uh, Jason, I hear you have some brown apples on your counter at home. <laughs> yeah, Preston. Our kids love apples and my wife will cut up a big pile of them and you know they'll just enjoy them but the problem is with apples as we all know after 10 or 15 minutes sitting on the counter they start to turn a little brown uh, they get a little bit slimy on the outside and they're just not quite as appealing correct jason we work a lot with transgenic corn and soybean crops it's always interesting for me to talk about different portions of the ag industry in this case the apple industry and how they're using some of the same transgenic technology that we're using for modern row crop farming yeah today we spoke with neil carter who's the president of okanagan specialty fruits which is a company that has used biotechnology to develop an apple that doesn't turn brown so they can cut it up they can put it in package make it convenient to take in your lunch or whatever and those apples will stay nice and fresh and crispy looking without any additives that's definitely the future of production agriculture so without further ado let's jump into the conversation with neil welcome to the podcast neil to kick things off here today would you mind giving us a little bit about your background and your career history Sure. I guess this is about my uh, 38th year of being in a professional engineer and uh, in the ag business. And so that means I'm a, I'm a bioresource engineer by training. So that's kind of a glorified name for an ag engineer. And my career history has covered a lot of ground. Um, you know, for many years, I'm more than 15, close to 20, I guess, I was doing international agriculture development projects. So I have worked in over 50 countries around the world doing ag development for a broad range of clients being multinational organizations like the World Bank and Asian Development Bank or bilateral organizations. And these were typically in the developing world, you know, we're trying to introduce technologies and such. So a lot of my career has been in the technology introduction area in agriculture. I'm pretty passionate about that and trying to advance agriculture around the globe. And, uh, you know, since 1996, where we started Okanagan Biotechnology, as it was called at the time, now Okanagan Specialty Fruits, that sort of morphed into um, a lot of other small business activities, including, you know, since 1995, our families had a, an orchard, uh, currently farm with my wife and, and son and a, and a nephew, uh, apples and cherries here in Summerland. So pretty lots going on in our life. Well, that's impressive. And I think <laughs> it's, it's probably a topic for a much different episode, but it would be interesting to, to learn about what you've learned being in all those different countries and looking at agriculture around the world, because I'm sure that agriculture is not the same. Um, we know, you know, President and I are sitting in central Illinois. It's very different from British Columbia, where you're sitting. And 
you know, you go all around the world, 50 different countries, you've seen all kinds. Absolutely. You know, we've done projects with treadle pumps in Africa to try to allow them to use to have a, an off season, off rainy season vegetable uh, crop, you know, and a lot of mechanization activities in the Middle East and elsewhere on in lentils, trying to you know, stop people from cutting and threshing lentils by hand and goes on and on. We worked for seven years in Bangladesh doing a massive uh, crop development and diversification program. So yeah, I worked in North Korea several times and you know it's a weird place to work, but not people, how many people have been there and I can't <laughs> say it was, but so yeah, there's quite a lot of, quite a story that goes with that, but I don't know if we have time for that today. <laughs> I, I hate to not have you tell it. It sounds like it's probably fascinating. <laughs> That'll be my retirement project. I'll write that book, maybe. <laughs> we'll look for that. So, Neil, tell us about your company. You're president of Okanagan Specialty Fruits. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So, Okanagan Specialty Fruits is a company my wife and I started back in 1996. So, a long time ago now. We're, you know, we've had our 25th anniversary, or we'll soon to have it, um, and was really a four-purpose created business that to look into looking at doing new things in the tree fruit, you know, new breeding and activities in tree fruits, particularly apple. Um, you know, we as orchardists had looked at the massive amount of fruit that's wasted and, and basically culled due to superficial bruising and uh, bin rub and basically post-harvest handling. And then linking that with, you know, the, the, the decline in apple consumption because as apples weren't competing well in the marketplace against other snack foods. And then this huge explosive growth that was happening in um, the fresh cut fruit and produce industry. And we said, you know, man, we really need to, need to reposition the apple business. And uh, at the time, it seemed a lot easier. And, and, and it's sort of taken us <laughs> 25 years to get there. But um, it's really exciting what we're doing now and seeing that vision being realized. You mentioned food waste there. How big of a problem is food waste? Can you put a number on that or can you explain that for the listeners just a little bit? Yeah, I don't think any farmer or any retail store or anything along the value chain wants to generate food waste. It just seems to be a, a byproduct of the way the, the business has, uh, has developed, you know, whether it's kind of interesting way back in 1987, I think it was, or 88, I was working in Indonesia and working in Thailand. And, and we were looking at the waste, basically a 35 to 40% waste stream from, from farm level through to the marketplace just shrink due to um, harvest, post-harvest handling, marketing, and then in, at, at the consumer level, um, you know, retail and, and within the home. And that number is, is, you see that almost everywhere in North America and Europe. We haven't been very good at reducing that. So it's a big, you know, it's huge when you think that you know, 35 to 40% of the food that we generate gets wasted along the, the, the value chain, ultimately to reach in the consumer. So it's a big problem. There's a lot of energy and, and effort goes into uh, growing these crops. Then to see that much shrink in the process is, is never a good thing. You know, I do feel like there are segments of the, like the grain industry and stuff where they have done a really very good job of minimizing losses at harvest and grain handling. But you know, I think they'd be, by the time you've milled it and put it in a bag and shipped it to the market, I'm not sure what the number is, but there's a sizable chunk that's been lost. And with highly perishable items like produce, it's, it's just much higher, much worse. So, but, you know, I think that the, the problem is recognized is interesting. I've spoken to the stewardship committee at, at Walmart, for example, and, you know, the big retailer, grocery retailers have established a 
quite a position in trying to address food waste and increase their sustainability efforts. And, and I think that it's really, I think, early, early days in that process. But I, I do think what it's, it's going to mean a lot of difference in the grocery store itself. And it, COVID, in a way, has helped uh, drive some of that because I think it, consumer packaging is going to be part of it. I think, you know, just having bulk displays, bulk bins and people handling food and food produce is never a good way to, you know, not have shrink. And uh, so, you know, you're seeing, I think in the Apple business, uh, we had, I can't remember the numbers now, I just saw them a few weeks ago. I think the consumer packed apples, so apples in a, you know, over, over wrap type bag or a clamshell or some form of uh, pouch bag, you know, they represented around, I think, 15 to 20% range of the total sales. And I believe now it's up over 50%. I think for some varieties, it's high as 80%. And, you know, that creates another problem is now we're using all sorts of plastics to to address our, our food waste problem. But anyway, one, one step at a time, I guess. Wow. Yeah. 40% is hard to even comprehend. I mean, especially in scope of the global insecurity with regards to food. That's insane. It is. And, and I, I could just show you, I, you know, I, I, I kind of, a lot of, a lot of that happens at the farm level, of course. And, you know, here recently we had a big wind event on, on Sunday. And for those who hadn't picked apple, their apples, you know, varieties that weren't ready yet, things like that, that wind dropped, you know, 20% of the apples onto the ground. And so it's, it's, it's certainly a lot of this waste isn't intentional. It just happens. And so, you know, that's factored into that number. So, it, in, in, you know, I think that it's somewhat overstated if people are thinking this is sort of human-derived waste. It can be for other, other reasons as well. So, Neil, Jason and I come from the world of corn and soybean breeding. I wondered if you could speak for a minute regarding apple breeding and developing new cultivars through traditional breeding processes, specifically the longevity and, and what that process looks like. Yeah, so, you know, apple varieties um, are clonally propagated, so they're, they're grafted or budded in your propagation. And so they're all clones out there. When you have, you know, your, your galas, they're, they're all budded, they're, they're not grown from seed. So I think it's important to understand that uh, when you cross the pollen from one apple variety to another apple variety by introducing the pollen from one into the stamen of the flower of the other, that will that's that will create a seed and that seed will be a combination of those two varieties and will create a new unique variety of itself and and so really that's how you breed apples apples are bred through uh breeding lines popular like golden delicious a very popular breeding line currently Honeycrisp is a new proper breeding line braeburn was another you see people who who have the varieties that people like and have the traits that you want and then you're people crossing those with new traits to introduce, you know, firmness, um, uh, size, uh, resistance to different uh, pests, or a whole range of different things, traits as you would call them. And so, so it's a long process. You know, it starts by having a, an apple variety growing in a in a test block and collecting pollen, and and then pollinizing those by hand, usually with a, like a Q-tip. And then bagging those flowers and so they don't get, or you're doing it inside a greenhouse or something, so you don't get bee activity ruining your nice cross that you've done. And so, you know, breeding programs around the world will have, some will be large, they'll have um, five to 10,000 
uh, crosses that they'll do each year and others are more modest and 20, 2,000, 3,000 crosses or something, but it's all very labor intensive. And and then you follow that, you know, you have to wait to, to get the seeds from the fruit and then you take those seeds and you stratify them and germinate them and you grow them up. And ultimately you take those, uh, that, that the vegetative material, the bud from that growing up uh, little shoot and you bud it onto a, a rootstock and grow a tree. And from that, you wait until it gets apples and then you test those apples to see if you like them a lot. So you can picture this long process of having to wait to stratify your seeds and grow little seedlings and then grafting or budding those the buds from those seedlings onto a root. It, you know, it's a, it's a multi-year, each one of those steps is a multi-year process and then waiting for fruit and then evaluating the fruit. So it's a 20 year, you know, a conventional breeding of, of, of tree fruits is easily 20 years. For established programs, you know, it's more of a every year, um, you know, progressive bringing the program further along, but it's a big, big deal. One of the things I was impressed with was in Washington State, I believe it was 1992, they, maybe it was 94, actually, they rekindled their um, apple breeding program. And, you know, then they, they managed to create Cosmic Crisp, which has been a popular new variety in, in less than the 20 year period. And I think that was somewhat exceptional and, and not necessarily the norm, but but it's it's a long process. Yeah. You alluded to it, but when we when we talk about corn breeding or soybean breeding or, or some of the agronomic crops, we can actually do multiple generations, two or three generations in a year by harvesting corn seed, sending it to Hawaii or somewhere where you can turn it around really quick and maybe even do two generations and bring it back here to the Midwest. Whereas in apples, you know, you mentioned that crossing process and you mentioned getting seed, but you have to wait maybe five, six, seven years to get seed off of that tree, right? It, it has to be a certain age before it'll produce seed. Well, well, you'll get, you'll get the, the flower, you'll get the, the fruit from the cross right away. Uh, you pollinize the apple with the, the pollen, you know, so you do the cross right. into the flower and that flower generates an apple. So you get, you get the, the apple and that apple, of course, is the only part of that apple that will carry the genes from both from the cross will be in the seed. The flesh itself won't. And so, um, so you'll get the cross of paternal and maternal tissue in the seed, but yeah, then, you know, so you collect those seeds. So that's sort of year one, you do the cross, you get the fruit, you get the seeds, and then year two and three, you, you, you get stratify those seeds and you grow up the seedlings to get little shoots and plants from those. And now, now with, you know, next generation sequencing things, you can, you can have markers that you look for. You can, you can try to, short circuit the process somewhat, get rid of the ones that are duds. Like you'll be able to look for markers in by sequencing some of this, uh, some of these, these plants, these um, that you've crossed and looking for markers, whether they're there or not, and that'll allow you to call out some of these, some of these seedlings and, and not bring as much material forward. But ultimately you still have a couple of years to get, you know, the, it budded, and another few years to get fruit from that, at least for three or four. And so you are looking at seven or eight years down the road before you have a tree that's um, got fruit on it that hopefully your sequencing efforts and markers that you have will, will give you some kind of meaningful cross and selection. But, but you know, that's, then they go through a whole battery of, of looking at the fruit, multiple generations and you know, how big is the fruit and how, how character does it have all the trait characteristics you're looking for. So characterizing that fruit. And next thing you know, it's your, your 15 years in and, and you're trying to figure out then, okay, what's the, now we've got a few mid winners in this program. 
what do we do with these winners to commercialize them and you know to develop the commercial strategy for it and and then once that happens it, you know and you have something going out to nurseries because in that process also you're going to do some test trees to go out to commercial growers for them to try and for you to have you know get enough fruit to go and show the marketplace and show them off a bit and uh, you know it, it and then the nurseries take two years to grow a tree and, and and then the commercial market wants to have enough volume to make it meaningful. So then there's a few more years of those trees going around the ground to, you know, so it, next thing you know, you could be easily 25 years into it before a consumer sees, sees that variety. Well, to me, what was very interesting is that Honeycrisp, which many people think of as being, you know, a great new variety. By the time, like five years ago or so, Honeycrisp really started to become super popular. It's also about the same time it came off patent. So that variety had been developed and had a plant patent put on it and that plant patent to run its 20 year life cycle. And, and then the variety would start to have the kind of recognition it has today. So you, you can see that your um, plant protection IP and all that sort of thing doesn't really serve you that well given the, the longevity of how long it takes to, to reach a critical mass in the marketplace to be successful. That's a really interesting point. I mean, a lot of consumers probably don't think about that, but by the time you start seeing a new apple variety cultivar in the marketplace, it's got to be having been grown on a fairly large scale in orchards for quite some time before you can even get to that point where you can see it widely in the marketplace, right? That typically is the case. Cosmic Crisp maybe is it's going to have the fastest introduction curve because I believe 15 or 20 million trees were planted really quickly to get the volume they wanted. But yeah, normally it, it by the time you've had enough, there's sort of the, the adoption phase at the growing level, people aren't can't afford to take a risk in planting you know, a big chunk of their orchard to a new variety that hasn't proven itself. So there's a early adopter, mid adopter, late adopter kind of scenario associated with every new variety and people who can afford to take a chance on it and that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I kind of laugh by the time a variety is popular and, and the stores are all asking for it and the consumers demanding it and everything else, the variety actually from a grower point of view is heading towards obsolescence. You need to be thinking about what, what you're going to replace. What's the next thing you're going to place it with? You had mentioned, Neil, some molecular techniques, so using molecular tools to evaluate what is going to be in that seed, what that, what that apple is going to look like. There's another molecular piece of technology that I think is very important to this conversation as we start talking about your company's apples, and that is RNA interference or RNAi technology. Can you talk about that at a high level? Uh, just describe what that is? Absolutely. You know, so in our company, we've created the Arctic apples, and this apple is essentially a, a product of uh, using RNAi technology, so interfering RNA. And I think to be able to kind of just take a step back, it's important for people to understand that, you know, I think most people have heard DNA and heard RNA and have heard the word protein and such, but you have to kind of understand the flow here that basically, you know, plants have DNA and this is the double helix that you've many see, have seen and it contains, you know, the 25 or 30,000 genes that uh, make up the, the genome of the plant. And DNA is, is then transcribed into RNA in the process of making a protein. So to get, a, to get in our case, we have polyphenol oxidase is the enzyme that drives the browning reaction in apples. And polyphenol oxidase or PPO is, is a gene. And that, that it's actually a gene family, but we'll just call it a gene. So, and it's a protein. And so to get 
PPO, you go through this process of DNA becoming RNA and RNA basically then translated into the protein. And those are all very complicated multi-step process and such, but we don't need to get into that. So what RNAi is, is, is a means to turn off a gene or silence the gene. So hence the word interfering, you're inter the interfering RNA. How this works is that, and, and this is not something we created, plants have been doing this forever and plants do this all the time. Really interfering RNA is a plant's self-defense mechanism. When a plant sees something like a virus attack it, that virus will often create a double-stranded RNA. So the viral, in, in the DNA, at the DNA level, the plant will, will intercept, you know, it basically manifests itself into the plant DNA. It'll create this double-stranded RNA for, where normally RNA is a linearized single-strand product. And that double-stranded RNA plants know is, is a problem. It cause puts the plant at risk. And so they have uh, enzymes called dicer enzymes that will get triggered and they'll chop up that double-stranded RNA and hence no proteins generated and the virus won't be able to propagate and the plant's being able to protect itself. It's pretty cool. So what we do is we try to trigger that. We, try, we create a double-stranded RNA and harness the plant's self-defense mechanism to chop those up and not get the PPO protein. There's different ways of doing it. In the early days, this was done through an anti-sense approach, basically looking at uh, the, the DNA and inserting your protein, a second copy of your protein into it. So if you picture in the double helix, you've got PPO sitting there residing on, on the, the anti-sense strand. And you then say, look, we're going to insert this into the sense strand and we're going to send a very specific bits and pieces of that PPO gene because, you know, it's too big. We just want, we want areas what they call high homology, so of similarity. And so what we do is spend a lot of time doing the genomic work to identify what that is, splice those out of the sequence and put them into the DNA strand. And so that when the plant creates RNA, it creates that double-stranded RNA. And some may have heard of, you know, micro-interfering RNAs essentially is what we're, we're doing is we're putting those, we're fueling the process by putting, making sure we're going to have a fragments that represent those 21 or 22 base pair micro interfering RNAs that we're looking for. And uh, so this is a kind of a cool thing that we managed to do. And in our case, it, it's four genes because polyphenoloxidase is in a family. We had to go and knock out silence four genes at once. And so we have a gene sequence that is less than 400 base pair regions of each of these four genes that make up the piece that we insert. And then as it goes through the process of uh, transcription and translation, we get essentially none or very, very little polyphenol oxidase being produced. So I don't know if that's confused everybody now, but that's sort of the process. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, DNA to RNA to protein, we basically put a big X between that RNA to protein step by doing a little bit of very, very minute targeted change to the DNA. We don't get the protein. And the protein you're referring to is that protein, that enzyme that makes the apples turn brown. That's right. Polyphenol oxidase, the, the, the enzyme driving the browning reaction. People will sometimes will say, oh, you guys are playing God. You know, you're, you don't know what you're doing messing around with all these genes. And it's actually very the exact opposite. You know, conventional breeding is just this gross mixing of genes and 
whatever happens, happens. And then you screen afterwards and you choose the ones you want. In our case, it's extremely targeted. If you think there's 750 million base pairs of the Apple genome, and we're playing around with 800 of them at the most, sometimes it's as little as 400. It's extremely targeted to the very specific, highly homologous regions of the polyphenol oxygenase gene, which we target and nothing else. The new tool in our lab is next-generation sequencing, and rather than characterizing plants through assays and PCR reactions and all stuff, we now sequence just everything to different depths of sequencing. But by doing this, there's never, like, you guys don't know what you're doing is never the case. We always know exactly what we've done, where we have inserted our, you know, where our insert is and how it's manifested into the genome of the plant. So what shape it's taken with, how much of it's there where it landed, all these sorts of things, because the regulatory agencies need that. Arctic apples are your product, Neil. I I was curious, so do you have multiple varieties that have this elimination or reduction of the PPO enzyme? And then finally, where can consumers find these apple varieties? Yes, the answer is yes. Arctic apples, the term Arctic is really the the brand we've associated with the varieties that has reduced uh, polyphenol oxidase and, and, and reduced browning. We've done it with Arctic Goldens and Arctic Grannies were the first two. Then we added Arctic Fujis. So those three varieties have been through all the regulatory path of both Canada and the United States and are now ready to be fully commercialized. And we have them planted in our orchards and we're busy harvesting Arctic Grannies right now. Our Arctic Goldens are finished and next week we'll be har- harvesting Arctic Fujis. Different varieties exist. And they are essentially are varieties everybody knows, but with the uh, the trait difference, which we, you know is not just a non-browning. Arctic apples basically are better eating apples because the fact that we don't have polyphenol oxidase, that enzyme basically chews up the substrates, the, the polyphenols, and those are the flavors and the aromas and the good things in an apple. Arctic apples have higher flavor profiles, and they also store longer. And they're firmer. And it's been really interesting how by just tweaking this one gene in apples, we've made them a much better product. It's interesting you pointed out that you have different these different varieties. And these are the, the Granny Smiths and the Golden Delicious that we're all familiar with. You've just gone in and changed a few base pairs in there to knock out that enzyme, which, you know, we, if we compare back to that traditional breeding process where you would say want to bring in some kind of trait like that or disease resistance or whatever, as you mentioned before, you'd be scrambling up the whole genome and, and then trying to bring along the traits. So you couldn't really get, um, with traditional breeding, it would be very difficult to get that exact same cultivar that we're all familiar with, with this trait integrated into it, correct? That's right. And, and you know, that's the difference is through our bioengineered product, we can focus on the trait and we can do it in any variety, but we've really focused on varieties that are known and are well-liked, have strong market presence. Because in general, you know, there's been a kind of a proliferation of new varieties in the apple business. And I think consumers are genuinely overwhelmed and confused by this abundance of new varieties. And so they don't really know which ones to buy. And so they just keep walking and go buy pears instead or something to that effect. And, you know, and I, I really do feel that some of the greatest varieties out there, there may be traits they have that we can fix to make them, you know, basically rebrand a, a great golden 2.0 as you might want to call it or whatever you know it's basically it's that great variety everybody always loved but now it has this other trait that makes it better for our case something like granny and golden by knocking out ppo and these it was always being difficult to get them to the marketplace without a lot of scrabble marks and bruises and marked up fruit and all this stuff and in arctic apples 
basically deliver to the marketplace and they look and eat tremendously well. And, and I, th I think that they're right off the bat, they differentiate themselves just by appearance, let alone, you don't even have to, you know, prior to eating it, they just look better. So that was going to be, be my question there. So are they coming to the market pre-packaged or are they coming to the market as, a, you know, like typically you can see, as you mentioned earlier in the produce section, a pile of apples there that are whole and, you know, you can take six of them or you can take a bag of them, but are we talking pre-cut or both ways or how will they mostly be in the marketplace? Well, at this stage in the business, they're all, their only way they're coming to the market is um, sliced and in a bag, different size bags, two ounce, five ounce, 10 ounce and 40 ounce for like, you know, the school lunch program or box versus right up to food service. You know, ultimately, we, you know, we've had a limited volume as our orchards are young and as they get older and our volume increase, increases, we do see that we will have a whole apple business at some stage, but it'll always be consumer packed. So they'll be in some form of consumer packaging because they have to have their, you know, this product is bioengineered labeling on them, as well as that's just sort of what to you know, build our brand and protect our brand. Uh, and it's something that we've we've told the U.S. apple industry is that we want to uh, never never take the chance of commingling. Like we don't want to see our apples sitting out bulk, because then the chance of them getting mixed by you know people stocking the, these bulk display cases you know exists, and we don't want anybody to not know what they're eating. So it's you know sort of a promise we made, and I think more it's a it's a way for us to continue the stewardship of our brand. That's fascinating. We always like to ask our guests what excites you about the future of ag and meal. I feel like you're kind of one of those guests that's already in the future of ag. So I, I'm curious to hear your perspective on what excites you as you look forward. Holy crow, I, everything, all of it excites me. I'm <laughs> super, very passionate about agriculture. But, you know, I think I think the, the couple of things that within our, within our business, um, certainly next generation sequencing and what it's doing to speed up the process and to address any kind of regulatory questions, uh, super effectively uh, is amazing. It's just phenomenal and how quickly that's advancing and, and you know, the, as a tool. And I th I've always just been a firm believer, every tool, use every tool in the farmers and, and agriculture sectors toolbox. And so next generation sequencing is exciting. Of course, you can't, you can't have a, you know, in a chat like this and not include DNA editing or gene editing and the CRISPR-Cas9 type activities that people are reading about a lot. It, you know, as a company, we we do gene editing for sure, and 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 we did it through bioengineering, and now we're doing it in other ways. And in fact, we we were doing it back predating CRISPR-Cas9. You know, there were other other tools in the toolbox before that tool was there, and we were so we've been doing this I don't know ten or twelve or fifteen years now, and that that's going to yield some great results. But one other piece in the future of ag is basically precision ag, and the user of sensor data and and data analytics and things, you know, on our farm here and our farm in Washington state, it's amazing how data driven we are for everything because, you know, chemicals are expensive, the water is short, you know, is, is, is a, a limited supply. And so we're, we, we monitor everything, everything. We, we have traps that catch insects and cameras that count insects and they'll drop it to your dashboard or send, a, send an alert to your phone that kind of thing. And so farming's just precision ag is, uh, has been around in field crops and is moving into, into specialty crops in a big way. And it's going to change how, how we farm, you know, and it, you can sort of picture the 
these self-propelled uh, electric tractors tied into your precision egg platform and what it's going to do for us. It's pretty exciting time. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, it's none of it's cheap though, unfortunately. So it, it does have the impact of meaning that, you know, uh, this, how does the small family farm integrate all this technology and pay for it and have the farm pay for it. And here at home in our family farm, we do struggle with that decision a little bit, but, but still, I think, I think we'll figure it out. And I, I think it's going to make us in the long run, uh, more competitive and uh, successful. So or at least we're, we're, we're convinced of that. that that's really fascinating. And, and it's something I hadn't thought about before being from, you know, being a little bit more focused on those agronomic field crops. Um, we can see the value of precision ag here, but, you know, I never thought about it being used in an orchard type setting or, or a, a specialty or horticultural crop setting. I guess you're at the same stage in the game where when we started getting auto steer and tractors and things like that, and I thought, well, that's a nice toy, but who wants to spend $30,000 on it or whatever, you know, it, I think you're at that point where you're wondering how to pay for it, but down the road, it'll be something you almost can't live without maybe. Well, and you look at labor and the cost of labor and, you know, like all apples currently, not all, but 99.5% of them are, are hand harvested. And, um, you know, the labor for that is, where's it going to come from? And how are we going to, and of course, we have to provide housing for them and, and transportation for them and all that sort of thing. And so, you know, you do see companies now coming into their fifth and sixth generation of robotic harvesters for apples and citrus and crops, especially crops. And, um, you know, we're going to see more of that, more advancements in that. And just to address the, the shortage of labor to, and, and basically people not wanting to do this kind of work. It's all coming our way, whether we want it or not. Can't kind of keep your head in the sand and ignore it. You have to look at it and analyze it and figure where it fits in your farming operation and when you feel it'll be it'll be ready for, for you or you're ready for it, one or the other. Well, Neil, this has been a great conversation. We've really enjoyed talking to you here today. We appreciate your time. Is there a way that people that are interested in learning more about this can learn more about your company, can contact you or interact with you? Or, you know, what do you recommend if someone wants to learn more about this topic or your product? Oh, we, yeah, we have two websites. We have the arcticapples.com website, which is really the consumer facing website. and has a lot of the information around, you know, how do we make the product? Or how do you find the product where it's sold? All these sorts of things. And then Okanagan Specialty Fruits has its own website, and that speaks to the science more, 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 and uh, some of the pipeline and all that kind of stuff. So I would welcome visitors to have that. There's also we have a you know a Facebook, um, we're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all the rest. So we have a whole team of people that love to engage with anybody with questions or comments. And so please, uh, listeners should should reach out if they want to learn more. Thanks, Neil. It's been a pleasure. Great. You guys have a great day. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.